The book of John is a, a long expansion on the prologue. A prologue is a short introductory section to a book. And following the prologue where Jesus is introduced as the eternal cosmos creating God who became human, John then gives Jesus' historical words and actions that back up this amazing introductory truth claim. So today we're going to walk through the prologue. We looked briefly at the first few verses last week. We're going to go through the whole thing this week. It's John 1, verses 1 to 18. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through Him, and apart from Him, not one thing was created that has been created. And if you've read the the Bible starting at the beginning, it sounds familiar. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And last week, we talked at length about the mind-blowing reality of the Incarnation, how it is neither unreasonable nor non-scientific to believe that Jesus is both fully God and fully man at the same time. It's a mystery. It is beyond, above human intelligence. It's not beneath it or apart from it. Ultimate reality, ideas about what has always been, is not the merely physical, as the atheist or the materialist would say. It is a who, it's not a what. An ultimate reality, as Aaron prayed, is a trinity. It's a personal God. In the beginning, God, this God was Father, Son, and Spirit. God the Son, Jesus, was with God and was God, and all things were made by Him. And I would say again, do not let your hearts be troubled just because your mind is blown. It's not subrational. it's above mere rational thought. We can understand it enough just not completely, and that's not a problem for us as humans because there's virtually nothing we understand completely. If you think about a baby who has very little understanding of self and virtually no categories for understanding the world around it, can early on understand this thing called mom. It's this hovering, feeding, hugging, smiling, happy, noise-making creature. Don't know exactly what it is, but it's safe, it's good, makes me happy. The baby has true knowledge of mom, though it's very limited in understanding of who mom is, say, compared to dad. But, of course, even dad has, who has more understanding of mom than baby doesn't fully understand mom. Ask any husband, and they'll tell you this is so. But the understanding I have of Christy, after many decades of life together, is not exhaustive, but it is broad, and it's accurate, and it's enough for a loving relationship. So John, as we'll see... Is not trying to get our minds all the way around Christ, but to get our hearts wrapped around him in relationship. To do that, you have to have true truth in your mind as well. So we need true truth to understand who Jesus is, but it need not be exhaustive truth. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. Life is a favorite word for John. He's going to use it 36 times in 22 chapters. And life is physical life. Jesus has made us, and yet it's more than that. He's remaking us. And the life that Jesus brings is eternal life, not eternal as in just a lot of time quantity, but eternal life is a different kind of life quality. Eternal life for John is a restored relationship with God that transforms us back to our original design. And this life begins at conversion when we're born again and doesn't end at physical death. So when we're born again, when we're converted, when we become Christians, followers of Christ, we don't just change our ideas Our lives begin the process of change into the image of Christ. That's the life that Christ brings. And this life, John said, is the light of humanity. John is saying that Jesus is the revelation of God to humans. Light reveals what is there. Light dispels darkness. In reality, darkness is the absence of light, not the presence of something else. 
And so when the people walking in darkness have seen a great light, as Isaiah wrote, they were walking in the absence of light, the absence of truth about who God is, the absence of relationship with God. And through Christ, we can know who God is, and knowing who God is is essential for knowing who we are and why we are, and more importantly, to know how do we have a relationship with God. So without the revelation, the light of Christ, we would have to guess who God is, who we are, what our purpose is, what our destiny is, what our problem is, and how we can fix it. And humans are notoriously bad guessers. And so if you turn on the news or, li- or read, read stories of people writing bloggers, you can see that people are guessing really what our problem is and what the solution is. Our problem is a lack of knowledge. Our problem is being unfulfilled. Our problem is a lack of money or pleasure. Our problem is being misgendered. We guess what the problem is out there somewhere rather than in here. In 1986, Harrison Ford starred in a film called Mosquito Coast. In the show, Harrison and his family flee America to escape the corrupting influence of civilization. So he goes to this very primitive, primitive um, continent, and, and it's just disaster after disaster from there. His family hates him. Everything goes wrong. It's him against nature, him against other people, him against his family, him against himself, and him shaking his fist at God. And in the end, he dies. If you're looking for a Valentine's Day film, fellas, you know, <laughs> I'm just kidding. Yeah. It does show the problem, though. The, the problem in the movie runs counter to the idea called Novel Savage, which was a philosophy tied to 18th century um, philosopher named Rousseau, where for him, civilization is a problem, that civilizations corrupt people, but what in the world is a civilization but a collection of people? So it's a nonsensical idea. But the movie, to its very depressing credit, shows that living for a solution to the wrong problem just makes more problems. And our problem is in here. It's sin, and the solution is Christ. And humans don't guess that. We never would guess that. We had to be told that. We had to be shown that. The light shines in the darkness, and yet the darkness did not overcome it. If you're reading in some translations, instead of overcome, have understood. There's some... The word can be used either way, but really both are true. The darkness can neither overcome the light, and people who walk in the dark cannot understand it either. We, we often use light and dark as metaphors. Martin Luther King, in a speech, said darkness cannot drive out darkness, only light can. And he was using darkness as moral evil and ignorance, and light as moral goodness and knowledge. And in our minds, we're so accustomed to these figures of speech that we can turn light into dark into equal and opposite forces in the world. Evil and good are in this cosmic fight. Who knows which one will win? Well, we do. We, we know who's going to win. They're not equals. And Christians can subtly, subtly do this without meaning to. In their minds, turn God and, and Satan into these equal and opposite powers. They're like two nearly equal-powered superheroes. But in fact, Satan is a created being. God is uncreated. Satan is limited. God is unlimited. Satan is no competition for God, just none at all. Just as darkness is not in competition with the light, it's just the absence of it. And so when light comes, darkness is gone. There's just no fight. And so Christ, the revelation of God, shines in the darkness. The darkness cannot overcome it. Turn the light on, light wins every time. But in another sense, darkness can't understand it either. So try to imagine Trying to, trying to describe color to a person born blind. Color is photons bouncing off of things, and our eyes register those different colors. Where would you even begin to, dis- to explain that? 
can't comprehend it. So this revelation of the truth of God is a work of God. It's not just human thought and imagination. We have to think and understand who God is, and it's a work of God in us at the same time. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. So why does John throw in John, the Baptist, here? Well, he's not thrown in. This is a key to understanding this whole idea of the word became flesh. He's going to get to in in verse 14. John is the witness to the light. He was a man who was born and lived and died. In human history, God gave prophets who foretold the coming of the light into the world. This is one of the the validating aspects of the Bible. They said these things are going to happen, and they happen. They said the Christ is going to come, and he came. Long before Jesus came, they said he was coming. Now in human history, God unsurprisingly gives another prophet who said he's right there. And so this incarnation is not just some kind of religious, spiritual mumbo-jumbo. The eternal word of God became flesh. That's very esoteric. It's wow. And, 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 oh, and this rough, bug-eating prophet who smelled of the woods, he pointed his fingers at the evil powers of his day. He was a very much a real guy in history. And then these prophets who said he's coming, he's coming sometime out there in history. On an actual calendar day, this prophet says, There he is, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's brilliant how John goes from eternal logos of God to this earthy prophet of God. And the Bible will not put up with us splitting reality into component parts, the spiritual and the physical world. We're prone to do that. There are a lot of religious and philosophical systems that have this world of shadows, semi-reality, that's the physical world, and then the real spiritual world, the world of substance, the really real world is a whole other kind of reality. That's nonsense. When you're praying, when you're worshiping in church, if you're changing diapers or the oil in your car, or even if you're hugging a toilet with stomach flu, it's all the world that God has made. In the beginning was the eternal logos of God, and John, this ranting baptizer, was living in the woods, picking kicks off his body, waiting to reveal Jesus to the world that he had made. And to understand where John is going, you have to get all of that. The cosmos creator became flesh in the real world. This is historical fact. It's not religious fiction. You can't divide the world into component parts. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was created through him, and yet the world did not recognize him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. So if you've read John before, then we know at this point where he's going in his narrative But if you'd never read it, then the big reveal is coming in verse 14. And the flow of the script, we only know the true lie of the world is coming. How's this going to happen? What's it going to look like? But what we have so far is that this creator of the world is coming into the world. He made everyone and everything, and yet he's going to be unrecognized and rejected by many that he's made. This is the irony. And world is the Greek word cosmos, and John uses it three different ways in his writings. It can be the physical cosmos, the world was created through him. It can be humanity, for God so loved the world, John 3, 16. And it can be humans as societies and cultures in opposition to God, like his letter, 1 John 2, do not love the world, the cosmos. Verse 12, but to all who did receive him, he gave them the right to be children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of natural descent, or the will of the flesh, or of the will of man, but of God. So many, but not all, would reject him. 
and those who did and those who still do receive him, they're reborn. And we're going to come back to these verses in a minute. Verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed his glory. The glory is the one and only son from the father, full of grace and truth. And so now the plot is fully given way. How's this going to happen? Well, the eternal cosmos creating word of God became flesh and dwelt among us. And dwelt is a word that literally means to pitch a tent or a tabernacle. A tabernacle was a tent-like structure that Israel used in the wilderness. It's a very significant use of the word here. In the Exodus, God's people have been rescued from Egypt in the greatest redemption event in history until Christ came. And that event, the Exodus, really is a series of events, is full of historical realities that are pointing forward to the coming of Christ. The Bible is one story. There's the Passover where the blood of the Lamb spared the life of the people. There's the deliverance through the sea, which is also a look forward to Christ, Hebrews says. Then the long guidance of God through the wilderness on the way to the promised land, that pointed forward to Christ. And during that decades-long journey, they were instructed to construct a tent-like structure that was mobile. When it was set up, at certain times, God's glory would fill it, and not even Moses, who was very dear to God's heart, could go in. When his glory lifted, it was time to go. As long as it stayed, they were to stay put. And it was teaching them what it meant to follow God to be faithful, pointing forward to what it's going to mean for us to follow Christ. As I was reading that Exodus story this week, I could imagine myself getting up after a couple of months in the same campground, hoping it's time to go, looking over the tabernacle and the cloud sitting there. Now, are you kidding me? I'm sick of this place. Let's go. Or another day, okay, we're moving already. We just got here. I don't want to go. And it really is a picture of my life as a whole. I spent way too much time growing impatient with God's pace because it wasn't the pace that suited me. And I regret what I've missed. Now, he's been kind, even in my impatient demanding. We all have demanding hearts that demand God and others do things in the way and the timing that we want them to. And God's trying to take away those demanding hearts and replace them with trusting hearts and grateful hearts, which is the opposite of a demanding heart. So he's been patient with me, even in my demanding, but I've missed a lot of joy in the journey. I am getting better as I get older. I'm, I'm hoping I'll figure it out before I'm dead. Probably won't happen completely, but I'm, I'm hopeful. Later, when they arrived in the promised land, they built a temple where God's presence would come and be with his people in what was semi-permanent fashion. It was still semi-permanent because they were going to rebel, temple would be destroyed, and even the temple was never meant to be permanent. It was pointing forward to Jesus, who was God with us, and then would be through the Holy Spirit, God in us. Both the tabernacle and temple pointing forward to Christ. And so Jesus would stand in front of the temple and say, tear this down and I'll rebuild it in three days. And he's talking about himself. They're looking over at the building saying, that took decades. You're out of your mind. And he was referring to himself. The dwelling place of God was now with men. He would be killed and raised from the dead in three days. And so here John writes, Jesus tabernacle pitched his tent among us. So let me read Exodus 40, just a little part of it. Then the cloud covered the tent of the meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. That's, the, that's this tent. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of the meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. So the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night. 
in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. This was key to their traveling. Pay attention. God moved, you moved. God stayed, you stayed. They were learning to follow God to move at his pleasure. And John wrote the, tabernacle, the word tabernacled among us, and we've seen the glory of the, of the only Son of the Father. So Jesus has pitched his tent among us to reveal God's glory to us. Verse 15, John testified about him and said, This is the one of whom I said, The one coming after me ranks ahead of me because he existed before me. So Jesus was born biologically after John. John's ministry preceded the Lord's, but Jesus far outranked him because he existed before John did. In fact, he made John. Indeed, we've all received grace upon grace from his fullness, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the one and only, who is himself God and is at the Father's side. He has revealed him. So in verse 14, John wrote that we've seen God's grace in Christ. Now he says we've received it. So we saw it in Christ, and now people are receiving it. And he said we've received grace upon grace, meaning what Christ has brought far exceeds all the other graces that God has done so far. God gave the law through Moses. It was a blessing. It was a gift, but it pointed to Christ, who is God's greatest gift. And Moses, the man who was so dear to God's heart, asked to see God's glory one time and was said, I'll cause my goodness to pass in front of you, but you can't see my face and live. You can't handle my glory. And now Jesus, the eternal Son of God, has seen God, who is in fact God, has made God known to us. We've seen what Moses could not, God's glory in Christ. And John wrote in his letter, we have seen, we have touched, we have felt, we have heard God incarnate. We experience God's glory in Christ. And glory means greatness, goodness, the ultimate meaning, source of life. Jesus has revealed that. And he said that Jesus is at the Father's side. It's not a word that just means proximity. It means closeness or affection. And John's going to use the word again in chapter 13. He's having dinner with all of, all of his buddies. And he, and he said one of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at the table at Jesus' side. And he's not just telling us the logistics of the dinner. We don't really care the logistics of the dinner. He's tying, he was at Jesus' side with the one whom Jesus loved. And so when John writes in, in chapter 1, Jesus was at the Lord's, God's, the Father's side, he's talking about the intimacy of relationship. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. Now, said we'd come back to verses 12 and 13. And what's important about that, by the way, is there is no other human-made religion where there is a triune God, three persons and one being. And what's important about that is if you have a personal being who's made the universe, which you do because there's personality, and personality doesn't come from non-personality, if that person is solo, how can they express personality? How can they love? They have to make something or somebody to to express their love. And if they have to make it, then they're not a fully independent being. They need what they've made. In reality, God the Father, God the Son lived an eternal loving relationship. Personality existed before anything else was made. This is mind-blowing, but it's the reality as it is. Now, said we come back to verses 12, and I want to look at how John has crafted this prologue as a kind of beautiful historical poetry. It's historical, but he puts it together in poetic Form. And these, these 18 verses are what's called a chiasmus. It comes from the Greek word for chi, which is formed like an X. If you've ever done, now if Aaron was up here, he would describe this in poetic forms, but I'm going to describe it like at the gym. 
So, because I don't have gym. Aaron is also good in the gym, but he, but so if you've ever done what's called a pyramid weight workout, and you do you do a set of ten, then you do a set of twenty at twenty pounds and thirty pounds, and then forty, then you go thirty, twenty, ten. It's like it's like that. And so the center set is the heaviest set, and this chiasmus is a is a common form of writing at that time because it has symmetry, beautiful symmetry. And it also makes points of emphasis by repeating certain things. And then you can have D, you can have this focal point. And there are a lot of these in the Psalms. Rod, you can ask Rodney, he can tell you some of them. He's our Psalms expert. But let's see how John has done this in his prologue. So you have, you have those are verses, 1 to 5, 6 to 8. So A, A1 matches A2 at the bottom, and then B and B and C and C, and then D kind of stands alone. It doesn't have its corresponding set you can look at this in the passage yourself sometime but the center is verses 12 and 13 yet to all who received him to those who believed in his name he gave the right to become children of God children born not of natural descent nor of human decision or of a husband's will but born of God this is also going to be the stated purpose of his book John 20 31 these are written so you may believe that Jesus is the Christ and by believing you may have life in his name so that's going to form my first final application. We've had multiple applications, but the first application is a question. Have you believed the gospel and received Christ as your Savior and Lord? Are you at the place where you are willing to follow him? And you, biblically, you have to believe that Jesus is the Savior who has been raised from the dead. You don't have to figure it all out. Now, it is about truth that your mind can take in. So we don't, we don't say here, hey, just stop thinking for a minute and just feel the Spirit. That's a great way to be messed up. What we say is, believe the gospel. Here's the facts. God in space and time in human history has done this. Believe those. Do you believe those? And now, pay attention to the work that the Holy Spirit is doing in you. He's drawing you right now. So it's both. So do you believe that Jesus Christ is a Savior who's been raised from the dead you don't have to figure it all out. It's about truth that your mind can take in. And then are you paying attention? Is the Holy Spirit moving in you, drawing you to himself? And, and so I don't want you to underestimate maybe what we would call feelings or, or the Spirit's voice speaking to you. It's not irrational, but, but God's work in us is more than just reason. And I say that because you can sit in church or maybe you can be having a difficult time in your life and you can, you can feel the Spirit moving and you can blow it off, and that's nothing. Or you can turn the radio on, or you can. There's so many ways to drown out his voice. Now he, the, God is a gentleman; he's not going to kick down the door. And the Spirit does speak in a quiet voice, and it's very easy to drown it out. And sometimes we can miss it. One of my longtime best friends came to Christ at Wichita State, and he, he was so far from God externally. He was mean, he was brash, he was arrogant. And I didn't see the Holy Spirit working in him until one day this big, mean, arrogant, brash guy began to weep and said, I'm empty. And he gave his life to Christ that day. Now, it wasn't contentless. I told him the gospel. But then the Holy Spirit was moving in him. So have you given your life to Christ or are you unsure about where you stand with God? And you can be. I'm, I'll pray a prayer here in just a minute. There's nothing magic about 
the words, but if these words are the authentic cry of your heart, if this is where you are, then God will hear you and save you. So stand by on that. Second application is if you're a follower of Christ already, then I want to I lean in on where the Holy Spirit's been leaning on me this week, lean in with you. Are you, by the Spirit's power, putting to death your own demanding heart? If you follow Christ, I want to take you back to thinking about Christ as the tabernacle, where when it went, they went. When it stayed, they stayed. Jesus said to the people who recognized who he was to the degree that they did, what did he say? When they would come up on him, he'd say, follow me, follow me. Get, get back here and follow me. And the disciples often became impatient with his pace and his priorities. But Jesus had his own pace and his own priorities. In the wilderness, Israel often became impatient with the Lord's pace. He was training them to trust. God has not changed. He is training you and me to trust him. And we get impatient with his pace. And we often get off on different priorities than he does. So I want you to think about that. Uh, if you're a follower of Christ already, he doesn't need you to be merely busy. He wants you to follow him. He doesn't need you to worry and fret. He wants you to love him. He also doesn't want you to protect yourself, to save yourself, not save yourself in terms of redemption, but save yourself from really being depleted, from giving your life away. He wants you to give your life away, to lay it down for others. And what he wants is when Jesus says move, move. When he says wait, wait. And to follow Jesus that way means we have to keep putting to death our demanding heart. Our hearts naturally demand that God and others do things like we want them to do things. And that will deplete us of gratitude and joy. So move at the pace of Jesus and live with the priorities of Jesus. You know, when the glory of God in the tabernacle moved, they moved. When it stayed, they stayed. They had to look at the physical tent. It's okay, clouds up, fires up, time to go. And then they could follow it. Now we... We follow a person, and to do this well requires relationship. So we have to be growing in knowing him and knowing his word in order to know when he's saying move and when he's saying be still. So let me pray, and if you're not at the point where you want to give your life to Christ or have, you feel like you can authentically do that, that's fine. Talk to a friend. Um, Fill out a card. We can talk to you, whatever you, whatever you need to do. But I would just say don't, don't keep putting off responding to the Holy Spirit's voice. Let me pray. And if this is the authentic cry of your heart, then God will save you. You can pray something like this. Lord Jesus, I believe that you are God became man. I believe that you died on the cross for my sin. I believe that God raised you from the dead. I don't understand it all, but I believe it. And I understand that you are speaking to me in the whole, through the Holy Spirit and calling me, and so I say yes. Forgive me for my sin. Come into my life. I transfer trust as best I know how from myself to you. If you're a follower of Christ, then this would be a great time right before we worship some more just to repent of and take your demanding heart to God and ask Him to replace it with a grateful heart.